Before we introduce today's guest, we would like to thank everyone who listened to episode 54 with rugby league legend, James Graham. If you did enjoy the episode, we would love to hear your feedback and a review on your listening platform. As well as the podcast, we do want to point you in the direction of our two best-selling books, Goldust, How to Become a More Effective Coach Quickly, and The Lone Wolf, a story about assumptions, authenticity, and action. It is Christmas, so it's a great time to treat yourself or somebody close to you. Now, for today's excellent episode, here is a snippet of what to expect. You look at football traditionally, you know, you've got one person telling you how you feel, telling you what you need to do, telling you how you feel when you don't do it. And, um, and I've just found it all weird. So the, the big key for me is building that trust. Obviously, you have, you have your values and stuff that you work within. Because I think when you start talking about this and building attachment with players, everyone starts thinking, oh, he's some holistic guru, and, you know, which isn't the case. You still have your values, you still have your work ethic and all those things you work under. We're excited to welcome Mark Robinson onto today's episode of the Golders Podcast. Mark is the head coach at AFC Wimbledon and joined the club in 2005 as a volunteer coach working his way through numerous roles at the club before being appointed head coach in February 2021. Mark strives to create intrinsic long-term performance by inspiring through values and purpose and has a refreshing approach within the game. Good afternoon, Mark. Good afternoon, Keith. Good afternoon, David. Good to have you with us today. Thank you. Good to be there. So, Mark, to us, Goldust is sprinkling particles of knowledge to help people for the greater good. What does Goldust mean to you? Yeah, exactly that, really, Keith. Not trying to copy you, but it's exactly that. I think um, it's those moments where you visit somewhere or, or you listen to someone else. Um, you know, many times I'll go to a different environment, different in learning environment, and you'll listen to someone and it can be possibly something where you feel maybe you don't get the message across as well as you like and you listen to someone else who does something or says something and you think in your mind, wow, that's a little bit of gold dust. I'm going to take that with me and hopefully that will help, you know, what you do and, and help the, the people you're working with. So, yeah, 100%, that's how I see it. We're going to delve into your, your coaching career, professional coaching uh, life. In a, in a little while, but just take us through a whistle-stop tour of your playing career, Mark, if you will. Yeah, um, wasn't long, unfortunately, but, um, yeah, I mentioned this, Keith, only because it would probably come up again when we talk about coaching and, and developing. So from a young age, I, I, on the council estate I lived, I played with my brother who was seven years older than me, so a lot older than me, you know, so they, they varied from three up to five, six, seven years older than me. So um, I think that's why from a young age, I sort of developed really, really quickly. Um, I got picked up uh, from Fulham when I was 10. So I kind of, that was in a London Cup final. So I always captained my school teams, my district teams, my London, you know, when I played for London. And I was at Fulham mainly, that was the main club. But back then it was very different. You didn't have academies or 
it was, it was very different. So I, I also had a spell at Charlton and a spell at Arsenal, but predominantly Fulham was the club I was at, um, captain their youth team. But I had, a, I had a serious injury when I was 15, 15 and a half. I kind of dissected my thigh. And really, Keith never recovered. I had loads of problems from that. I was out for quite a long time, and but it just caused lots and lots of issues with me, sort of all different parts of my body. I was very left-footed, like ridiculously left-footed, which again, I only mentioned that because it forms part of my views on coaching. Um, and because I was very left-dominant and I had this injury on the left, as I said, it really caused problems. So um, I, I went out of the game and then tried to get fit again. I come back in for a little while, a semi-pro level but then then it all started to reoccur again so seriously I sort of I, I, I packed it in by the time I was 19 20 yeah well, Mark I, I I am going to move on to obviously where you're at now AFC Wimbledon but you mentioned yeah. being very left-footed and how yeah. it shaped your coaching views what do you mean by that well as in not just well, one from an injury prevention side, um, Dave. So I've, I've realized as my knowledge grew, you know, as a coach, and you visit other places, you realize, you know, being very dominant down one side is, is not healthy for injury, and hence why my body broke down around me, and I still suffer now with, with problems. So, one, I realized that it wasn't good to be that, that one sided, and then also, you know, then you look at your playing. Style and I can remember playing games when I was younger and the opposition manager shouting out, "Keep him on his right, keep him on his right," and 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 the limitations it gives you. You know, um, I felt when I was on my left, if I was with the ball on my left hand side, I felt, you know, no matter what I could see, I felt like I, I had the toolbox to to hit any passes I wanted to hit. If I received it on my right, I saw the same options, but there was only one pass I was going to make, and that was a nice little side-footed 12-yard pass. So you kind of just realise it, it does limit, it limits you. So, you know, I, I was, when I started the youth structure here and then the academy at Wimbledon, I was very keen to, to try and develop, you know, two-footed footballers for, for both those reasons. This might be a first, Mark. We've got, there's three of us on here, left-footed, so we're... Uh... Wow, we could form the lefties club here. <laughs> yeah, There's nothing yeah. wrong with lefties. No, mine's just not. I mean, left can't even do a lot right now, to be fair, fellas. But there you go. <laughs> <laughs> well, Mark, you mentioned it a little bit. In 2004, you joined AFC Wimbledon. Yeah. Two years after the club was was formed, and after some success with one of the club's younger teams, you were then given the task of restructuring. Wimbledon's youth structure. Now, on January 30th, 2021, uh, you were actually appointed interim manager. Um, February 17th, you then got appointed manager on a permanent basis after you completely turned around the team's form, the style of play, just complete 180. And the team only lost seven of the remaining 21 league games that year. What do you attribute that change to? Um, I think there was a there was a freshness. You know, I was when I, when I got the job on an interim basis. It was well, you know, what, what what do I do? How do I approach this? You know, because I didn't know it was literally. You know, can you can you do it on an interim basis? So 
I thought, well, I've only, I'm only going to get one opportunity. So first and foremost, I need to treat it like it's my own. There's no point me just going in there and looking after it for someone else. I decided that if I was going to be good enough, I'd like to have a go. So I thought it was really, really important that I went in and, and had an impact and it felt really fresh and new to the players. So when I found out on the Saturday night, you know, I got, I got to work on the Sunday and I got some of the, the academy guys I knew, Rob, Rob Tuvey in particular, to get stuff ready for me. I also got some favours in from fans, um, you know, because I've been at the club so long time. I asked the favours if they, uh, I asked them a favour if they could get some ball to put up for me around the training ground. So I just wanted, when the lads turned up at training, I wanted this to feel like there was a change in culture. So I got these values boards put up around the training ground. And, and then I decided to do a presentation and I thought, well, I need, I'm going to do a presentation as though they've never seen me before. I'm coming in, fresh ideas, how we're going to do it, how we're going to stay up and how we're going to look to the future so that they didn't feel like it was a stopgap, really. And, and, and that was what I did. Um, can't lie, I was nervous because I, I see... I've had all these ideas around development that I've used for many, many years. And I've often wondered if you could take it into a first team environment. So, but I just thought, well, I've, I've got to do it. I've got to have a go. And I, fortunately the players were really respond, you know, they responded really, really well to it. Even the, even the more senior players. And I think, you know, that they, they, it just, there was a freshness. We took the shackles off in terms of how they were going to play. And, um, and I'd say that was the big thing, David, there was obviously, other things because it wasn't completely plain sailing. We had a little blip around Easter where, where we lost three games and I had to readdress some things. But I think fundamentally because the players were enjoying the culture and enjoying the environment, enjoying coming to work, that you know, I earned their trust and 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 they and they gave everything really. Well, when you, you finished playing, Mark, you had a very short playing career. At some point, you got yourself involved in coaching. Going down memory lane, what mm. did your formative years in coaching look like? Well, initially, you know, when, when I stopped playing, I, I weren't in a particularly good place, if I'm honest, which again forms part of my, the way I deal with players now. I was in a real, real low place because I could imagine, I couldn't really ever imagine not playing football, no matter what level I'd ever got to. You know, I always could never not imagine kicking a ball and playing football. So, um, I wasn't in a great place mentally. So I kind of stepped away from football a little bit totally, apart from watching it, because I, I, you know, I'm, I'm obsessed with the game. Um, and it wasn't until I went, I went and got a job uptown um, and I was working uptown for a music company and they had a football team and they asked me to do a little bit of coaching for them. They were due to go and play in Holland. And I took, I took some sessions from over Regent's Park and it quite they used to get they used to get spanked apparently every year by the Dutch. So and it had quite a dramatic effect on they went over to Holland and won. And then that kind of excited me a bit. I thought, well, maybe, you know, I've got something I can do here. So then I started um doing a little bit of work at boys' clubs and then I really started getting the bug for it and thought, no, I, I need to I need to be involved in football. That's my love. I had a good job, I was earning good money, but I just I just thought no. You know, I can't come away from the game I love. I need to do it. So coaching, Keith, it was it was just little bits here and there, really. Um, but then, as you know, probably know, when you come away from football, it's difficult to get back in it. So I took the dramatic step. 
Um, I was married then and I had two, two young children. So we took the dramatic step of opening up our own business. So I actually gave, gave up my very well-paid job and borrowed a significant amount of money to open our own business. And the thinking behind that was, is if the business worked, that would give me more time to go and coach more and more. And fortunately, um, the business worked. It, it done really well, which allowed my wife to run that and did give me the free time to start doing more coaching. And I look back now, and it's weird because, you know, when you're on a mission, you just think, yeah, business is going to work, blah, blah, blah. But when I look back and you look at the amount of small businesses that go bust within a year or two years and we had two small kids, it was crazy. But I learned so much from it and, and, it, and it worked and it gave me the chance to go and start doing a bit more coaching. I did some work at Crystal Palace, but that was mainly community work. They then offered me more work. Um, but then I bumped into a guy called Tony Wilson, who, who was doing the under nines at AFC Wimbledon and Tony was older than me, but he remembered me from my days at Fulham and he, and he asked me to come down and said, did I want to do some coaching with them? And I did. And um, that went really, really well for me. And it kind of. Mike, what is it and what was it really about coaching that lit the fire? I think when I played Dave, I wasn't quick. I was, I was, I was very technical, although it was all down one side. I was, I was technically good. Um, so I believed I thought about the game a lot. I was a, I was a real thinker. I read the game well, I believe. And I was never overly inspired by the coaches I worked under, if I'm honest. Um, I worked under some good technical information. and But in terms of the inspiration I got off the coaches, and I worked under some you know well-known coaches, I always felt like there could be more. So even as a player back then, I was I was I was quite underwhelmed by it, you know. I, I always thought, oh, is is this it a little bit? So, I guess then when you know I wasn't playing, it just made me think about it more. You know, why did I feel like that? I, I questioned myself. Obviously, you question yourself and think, well, maybe the lack of hunger come from you, but um, just loads of experiences I had. You know, I, I trained with Fulham's first team when I was very young. I got because I was doing so well at the time. I got asked to go pre-season and you was allowed to get involved with certain bits of the session. I just even remember that, the whole experience as a young player, you know, what should have been a fantastic experience wasn't for many, many reasons. And again, I wasn't some sort of shrinking violet or some soft lad. I just found the whole experience not great. Um, so I guessed all those things, all those things. And then when I got the chance to coach, I just I just saw it very differently in terms of how are you gonna you know get young people to perform and express themselves and and love their football. Were there any defining moments, Mark, you shared with us when you you work in working in the city? Uh, one of your one of your loves, of course, uh, in London. But were there any moments in your life when you thought coaching was to be your chosen profession? Um, I can't, probably not, but what I would say, there was loads of skills I learned that was are so transferable, you know, so the job I had um, uptown sort of then went down a sales route. So I was, I was fortunate enough to be trained by a really good salesperson who talked to me about attachment and building attachment with people in a really short time because my job at one point meant I was, I was going around South London, South East London, going into pubs, bars and restaurants. And I had to, I had to get money from these places for royalties in music, basically. 
So you can imagine, you know, some of the places I was going into in Dartford and Bermondsey, these kind of places. And he, ta he taught me how you can build attachment with people in a very short way and in terms of how you listen and, and how you can start conversations. So although I didn't realise at the time, the skill set I was picking up there was invaluable, you know, and, and I would say if I hadn't gone through that, I wonder if I, I would have ever, you know, picked up that skill set, if I'm honest. So I've always looked at businesses and having my own business and how these things are transferable. So then when I had my own business and had my own staff, et cetera, you know, you, you look at these things, how you can get the best out of people. So I'd, I would just say, it wasn't, it wasn't like I was thinking, Keith, all the time when I'm doing these jobs, I'm going to be a coach, I'm going to be a coach. But it was more after I looked at all these experiences and thought, wow, these are so valuable. Um, and then I would say what that did lead to was once I started coaching, it made me realise how important it was to keep learning because I thought, well, some of the skill sets I've got have come from me being in environments I might have thought I'd never been in. So I then thought it was so important to continue to push myself and take myself into different environments so I could keep improving. So to give you an example, early on, when I sort of started the academy at Wimbledon, I felt I always felt comfortable in 1v1 situations but didn't feel particularly comfortable or, or felt more nervous in group conversations. And I thought, well, I've got to present to groups of parents, etc. So I went and I went and did tours at Chelsea at Stamford Bridge Stadium tours so I went and did that twice a week and um, and again like incredible you know I've, I turned up there and the guy who did my training who's still there now Adam Burridge you know he did a bit of part-time acting so he was very comfortable in his own skin the other tour guides one was a Elvis impersonator so he'd won Britain's best Elvis another one was a cab driver so what he what he didn't know about Chelsea wasn't worth knowing if you know, he knew everything. I think another one had been on Mastermind asking questions about Chelsea. Um, the other one was a radio DJ. So you had these real, you know, flamboyant characters, loads of self-confidence. And I was like, where do I sit in this? What, 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 what have I got to offer? But because of the pressure of that, I thought, well, I've got to, I've got to, you know, I've got to offer something. And again, that was a great challenge. I only did it a couple of days a week because I was sort of working. But, you know, you're taking around 40 people, you know, each time, different nationalities and stuff. And there was one one time when Mourinho was manager and he, um, I can't remember what happened, but basically he didn't want people to watch the players train in the stadium. So I had about 400 people in one stand and I had to keep them entertained for sort of 45 minutes. You know, so doing that kind of thing, then, you know, you sh I still get the... You know, if I'm doing a presentation now, you still get those little belly rumbles that you always have. But in terms of self-confidence, that that was unbelievable for me, you know. Mike, I'm going to to move on in terms of your coaching. Can you share how you've, how you've adopted and evolved over the years to the similarities and differences with working now in, obviously, performance-based or result-based and then performance-based to when you were involved in development football? So I was very technical heavy, I would say, when I started coaching. You know, big believer that the better techniques you have, the better decisions you make. So I was very, very technical-based, probably a lot of unopposed sessions, um, you know, which has changed over the years. But, you know, my coaching knowledge was 
taken from my own knowledge, if that makes sense. Dave, you know, you do, you, you remember a session you might have done at Fulham with a coach and thought, oh, that, that was good. And you kind of replicate that and add things. But then, as again, as I did, visited different environments and you learn, you realise that, you know, you can learn technique through opposed sessions as well, etc. And the unopposed might be more individual stuff. So, but very, very technical based. Um, I always believed the better the make the player, then the results will come anyway. The performance will start to look after themselves. And, you know, and that was the case certainly with the young group I had. It was never about winning, although the culture and the environment we worked under, I believe, gave those lads that winning edge. Um, but it was always about how we were going to play and improving them as players. And I fundamentally just found the better they got, the easier it was to coach. You know, so if you was coaching tactical stuff, then if they got the tool set to, to, to carry things out, the tactical work was easier. So that's the journey I've gone under. And, and, and then along the road, I'd say I've then become a lot more solution-based thinking. I was always massive on player, player ownership from a, when I had this young age group, they were doing their own warm-ups from the age of 10, 11. I've always believed in that, that empowerment comes from taking ownership. But certainly, you know, a lot more solution-based thinking now. But I still, even though I've gone into first-team coaching and I've, I've got to obviously find the balance, I still maintain that if you have a culture and environment where everyone's coming to work to get better and improve, that still will lead to, to winning performances. Um, you know, and obviously it's new to me and I'm finding my feet in certain ways to get the balance, but I still maintain that. I still believe that everyone's got to come to work to improve, you know, whether it's technically, tactically. So I've gone on a massive journey, but I can honestly say I've taken an awful lot of what I've done and what I've learned in into the first team environment. And up to now, you know, the players from what I can see, uh, uh, loving it and enjoying it. We'll go into the solution-based coaching and the methods that are being applied, Mark, because uh, that intrigues the life out of us. But when you're working with players of all ages, really, how do you go about building an healthy learning environment? What happens? What, what is it, what's the first things that you're actually setting up because other than the planning of a session, that's just a give me for coaches, but there's a little bit more than there, isn't there? Well, I think it, I think it's people skills, Keith. It's first, it's building trust. Um, you're never going to have a, an educational or learning environment without trust, without players saying how they feel, how they think. Um, you know, and again, I've got you look at football traditionally, you know, you've got one person telling you how you feel, telling you what you need to do, telling you how you feel when you don't do it. And, um, and I've just found it all weird. So the, the, the big key for me is building that trust. Obviously, you have, you have your values and stuff that you work within because I think when you start talking about this and, and building attachment with players, everyone starts thinking, oh, he's some holistic guru and, you know, it, which isn't the case. You, you still have your values and you still have your work ethic and all those things you work under. But fundamentally, you can't perform or you can't get people to improve if you if you don't get clarity on everything that you're doing. And, you know, we've all sat in classrooms and nodded when we haven't got a clue what the teacher's talking about. And we've all done that the same in football when we've nodded because we don't want to be the one to say, well, actually, we, I don't understand what you mean. So I think you've got to build that trust 
And that only comes, you know, that doesn't happen overnight, Keith. Um, that, that takes time. And it's, and it's all those little conversations. It's not the big conversations when you stand in front of a, a group and you try and inspire them. It's the little in-between conversations, getting to know them, building that trust over time, and then fundamentally getting the players to, to talk and know each other now. And that's what I'm going through now. And, and it takes time. You know, there's, and sometimes I think I'm mad, like doing what I'm doing now as a first-team coach because I think the average stats now are 15 months for a first-team manager, which tells you everything, really. The fact that that's, how, that's, that's the longevity of a manager is 15 months. And I know that comes for various reasons because you don't get time and you don't get this, etc. But I've got a real firm belief in how you get the best out of people. And, and I need to... And education, no matter what people say, education isn't, isn't just telling. It's not. It's a constructive process. So that's one thing I know. So whether people agree with me or disagree with me on my methods, education is a constructive process. It's not me telling you, Keith, go and do that. And you go and do it and think I've educated you. That's not the case. So I might, I might be taking a gamble doing what I'm doing and doing it the way I am. But I believe that if I get the time to get it right, that these things become intrinsic behaviours and they become intrinsic values, which will set you in good stead for the future rather than everything being extrinsic motivation, which is some guy shouting at you, telling you what to do and, and you're playing through fear and you're playing, you know, you're playing with this supposed effort and hungriness because fear of losing your place rather than you're doing it because there's a purpose behind what you're doing, really. Well, you've mentioned about some transferable skills from working in the city, going in and out of pubs. You know, it's going to be rough and ready. You've got to speak the language that mm. is the environmental language. But when you're building trust in a footballing environment, they, particularly professionals, they'll suss out very quickly whether there's a real deal or otherwise. Yeah. But you've mentioned about having little conversations with players, and I, I don't know whether it's underrated or other. I know what my beliefs are. I, I'm on 100% into this. This being to actually impact players on the pitch, you've got to first get to know the player and get to know the person first before you get to know the player. But yeah. these little conversations that you'll be having to, you know, to consolidate a point maybe or actually get to know a player, what, what would be a typical conversation that you would have with them? It'd just be, it'd just be generally, it could be walking back from the training ground you know, and you just you just spark a conversation. How do you feel? How did you feel the session goes? And then that just lead into various other things, how they think about things, how they're seeing things. It then might go a little bit more personal because I might have noticed a little dip in them in terms of, you know, the way, the way they are. So I might use it as a way to get into to find out if there's anything bothering them and just to get them to open up, you know. And um, I think the problem is, the thing is, as well, Keith, you've got to remember with the players I'm, I'm working with and, and the academy I've come from. So some people might listen to your podcast now and go, well, you've either got it or you haven't, you know, but maybe they've been blessed with working with players who have got those elite behaviours who, who, who just turn up to work and give it everything every day. And that's the way they are. Fundamentally, you know, the players I've worked at Wimbledon with the academy have been players that have either been rejected from, from other clubs for not being good enough 
or they're lads we've picked up ourselves out of Sunday league football. You know, we, we're not, we don't get the cream of the players, obviously, where we're surrounded by your Chelsea's, your Fulham's and Arsenal's, etc. So we've, to, to have a success as a, an academy, we've had to get the best out of people, you know, and that's how I believe you get the best out of people. And we've had to find ways of, of making them grow. And even going into the first team environment now, you know, I hear a lot of coaches when I've been on my courses and done my badges, you know, the biggest gripe you hear from coaches are they're just, they're not made like they used to be and they're not, they're not this like they used to be. They don't have the same this as they used to have. And they're probably right in certain respects, but they've also got some skills that like an empathy and, and stuff that they've got that, that I never had that I think are really good. They've got lots of fantastic qualities, but maybe they haven't quite got some of the other things that we had through doing paper rounds and working on having Saturday morning jobs and all those stuff, you know, those kind of things, that little bit of robustness and resilience. Maybe they haven't got that, but it doesn't mean they don't care and it doesn't mean they don't want to work hard and it doesn't mean they don't want to have successful careers and passionately want to be professional footballers, but maybe just modern day life has given them things that aren't particularly helpful in what they want to pursue, if that makes sense, you know, because now everything comes quite easily. But the one thing that's not going to come easy is a football career and certainly a long successful football career. So maybe modern life doesn't lend to the, the personal traits you need. So you either rant and rave about it or, or you put in place things that you can get yourself on a level where they can understand. So for me, the biggest thing in coaching is perception. You know, so they will have a perception of hard work. Now their perception of hard work might be way off it, but they still have a perception of it. It's just way off where it needs to be. So, you know, you need to educate them to get their perception, you know, where it needs to be. And, and that's the same with all of us. My perception of me as a coach four or five years ago was I was on it. I was on it. I was I was to the point and my sessions run well, blah, blah, blah. And then I was fortunate enough to go and visit Eddie Jones with England. And I walked away, sat in the car and just thought, well, you are way off it. <laughs> You're way off it. So my perception wasn't where it needed to be. So, you know, that that's, you know, as I said, that's that's how I see it really is. But until you get to know them, you know, because it's like when someone's someone's having a problem and you go up to them and go, I oh, know how you feel. No, you don't. You don't even got a clue how they feel. How do you know how they feel? Their feelings are their own. So until you break down these barriers and you really, really get to know them, then I, you know, I don't see how you can ever get the best out of, of people. And that's the same with the staff as, as well as, as the players. In terms of sessions then, so we talk about a productive coaching session. What would that look like to you and what would it consist of? The first thing is you kind of, it would be you set the scene, Dave, in terms of the intensity, communication. So what does it look like? So we have a kind of process that we do around behaviours where the players look after that. So they look after the intensity of the session themselves. Um, and we have some conditions where they can stop the sessions if need be, if they feel that it drops. There's lots of positive reinforcement in there, but... I'm trying to get them comfortable enough as well to call each other out and there needs to be an acceptancy because I need them to recognise when things drop, not just me. So that's the first thing is we don't actually start sessions until we're happy that the sessions are at a level of realism. Otherwise, they're, they're pointless. 
And then in terms of the actual coaching, the, in terms of what the outcomes we're looking for, we won't give them the answers. So we talk very loosely about what the session is and what we're looking for, but there'd be a lot of problem solving within the session. So it won't, you know, it won't be, oh, we're, we're doing a session on attacking and wide areas and me just standing there going, you need to do that, you need to do that. We try and make the session so that it brings those out. And then within that, there'd be lots of questioning. There'd be, you know, there'd be questions, there'd be answers, but at the same time, it's not losing the fluidity of the session. So I guess the easiest way of looking at it, you know, I think you, there are times for directional coaching. Obviously there is, but I just, I look at it. The comparison I can give, I think, is is driving with a, sat, a satellite navigation system and driving, reading a map. So obviously the quickest way to get to your destination would be to be driving with a satellite navigation system. But the problem is, is if you do that journey again and your sat nav switch, switched off, you ain't got a clue how you got there or, or where to go. Or if the directions change or there's a road closure, you haven't got a clue. Whereas if you, if you go on that journey reading a map and you might pull over and you're taking points of interest and it's a slower process and you're actually thinking about it, once you've done that journey, it's more in there. And I honestly believe because you get a feel for the journey, you could go on the same journey again and there could be some road closures, but you'll probably work it out because you've had a feel for where you're going to. So again, it's longer term. It takes longer. Again, I, I might be wrong in the job I'm in now of being a first team coach. Maybe I won't get the time to do it. But again, I'm a big believer in, you know, you need to try and educate them so it becomes intrinsic and it's there, not just because they're, they're reacting to me shouting and hollering because on a Saturday when it really, really matters, you know, they can't hear me shouting and hollering. So they need to be able to react to ever-changing pictures and ever-changing situations, which up to now, we, we haven't done well enough, which just, again, reinforces why I believe this is the way that I've got a development. It's been touched on briefly, the term solution-based coaching. Yeah. What does a solution-based coaching session consist of then for you? So we might set them certain targets that they've got to try and achieve. Um, and we know that if they're, they're hitting those targets then basically they will have to come up with solutions to hit those targets, if that makes sense. You know, so rather than going, right, we're doing this, as I said, and, and telling them where to go, there might be targets within that session or, or goals set within that session where the only way they're going to achieve that is if they find the solution to the success. And again, the, the only difference is, you know, some people might go, well, I don't see the point, but, but your brain is working in a very different way when you're working out the solution to have success to it, you know, rather than just being told that that's the way I see it. So that's the way the session will look off the ball. I can't lie. It might be slightly different sometimes because off the ball, I feel sometimes it's slightly different. There are certain things that you just need to do in certain areas and they need to be possibly a little bit more robotic, but still in terms of, you know, recovery runs, et cetera, they still need to be able to spot things early you know, we talk about quickest recovery runs, for example. You know, we don't want someone running 50 yards when someone else can run 25 yards and get delay. You know, so again, you know, I think for footballers traditionally take everything literally and it's just trying to take that away so they react a lot better 
to ever-changing situations, really. So, Mark, when you, when you refer to certain targets within a, within a session, could you be more specific around a title topic or a topic of a, a session and then what targets are actually... Are you, are, are you coming up with the target or is that something that the players take ownership to? Yeah, no, we, within the session, when we're planning the session, we would think about, I mean, I'll give you a little example today. This was more of a fun session. So we did like a bit of a bingo board on finishing, you know. So um, there was all different types of finishing on there. And so we left the players, we just gave them a very loose sort of framework in terms of attacking but they had to come up with the different solutions to score to get the kind of finishes they wanted so there was there was like far post finish there was all different kinds of finishing like diving header which is something that's gone up disappeared out of the game so obviously if you're giving them then they've got to think about well what kind of cross are we get, do we have to achieve that will obviously fundamentally result from the defensive picture that's in front of them so and it was just fascinating just watching that session so that you know they're rushing off they've ticked one off they ticked another off but they're trying to come up with those different solutions to get those kind of finishes you know and then it becomes a competition they're thinking about it they break away they have a little discussion so in the next phase of play they'll be thinking right well okay we haven't ticked that box they're defending in a certain way. How can we get success to, to get that kind of finish? You know, and so that they're coming up with the plan. So that there's there's a mixture really, Keith. That, but that would give you an example of the kind of thing we're talking about. So the, the type of interventions that's taking place are minimal by the coach, but in, in terms of player interaction, quite a lot. Yeah, so we would have we'd have little breaks where they would break off and discuss it, and then I would go and get involved. What are you thinking? And that's when I would, start, you know, because, and they might go, well, we think this, we think this, and if I see it slightly differently, that might be when I feed something in. I go, yeah, but what about that? Or what if he did that? And then they go, okay, okay. So that's when then you start to guide them towards, you know, where they might have some success, where you might think, you know, they're going off track a little bit, and you want to give them some, you know, you want to give them some help. So, um, but as I said, when, without backtracking, when I got the job, just backtracking now, you know, I don't want you to think we were conceding a lot of goals when we got the job. You know, I think we conceded 38 goals in 11 games or something, you know. So when I initially got the job, I knew I had to get us more secure. So I can't lie, I got, I got the job on the Monday and I had a game coming up on the Saturday. So a lot of my coaching, I had some mannequins out and I was literally like, bang, the ball's there. You've got to be there. You've got to be there because that was, that was needs must. I, I needed to make sure we were more solid and we had a platform to go and work off. So you now people might go to me, yeah, but it worked. It worked. You know, you didn't concede. You didn't. It, it worked short term. It worked short term. But as I said, it, it, for me, it doesn't last. It doesn't last because you, the better side you play against, um, they start looking at you and they will come up. You know, because the thing people you remember about football, no matter what you get good at, Keith, there's there's another bloke who you're coming up against with players who, who are looking at you going, right, we're going to undo you. You know, so no matter what you get good at. So if I make them robotically good at something, well, you know for a fact that someone's watching you going, well, they do that very well, so we're going to do that. Now, if they can't react to that next change in picture, then you're sitting in the dressing room 
going, well, why didn't you do this? Why didn't you do that? And fundamentally, they didn't do it because they didn't know how to react to that change and that, that new problem, if that makes sense. So, um, and again, it's getting that mixture right. And in a job where you're under pressure, where points are everything, it's difficult to keep yourself on that straight and narrow. But fundamentally, this is how I believe long-term players get better. And, and I've got to stick with it, where at the same time, I've had some of the senior players coming to me, you know, sometimes we just need to be told. And I went, no, no, no. That's just what you've experienced over the last seven years. You know, so I've got to stick with it. Whether it ends up being the undoing of me, we'll see. But I've got to stick with what I believe in. As a coach, what's your purpose? And, and what's, what lets you know that you are fulfilling that purpose? Fundamentally, I just love making people or helping people. So not making people, helping people improve and grow. That's what excites me players and staff, seeing people improve and get better and flourish and, and, and seeing them change in a positive way, that's what really excites me. I've obviously now got to also blend that in with winning football matches, you know, and I love winning, like every, every person, I love winning. But fundamentally, if people aren't getting better or improving, then I feel massively underwhelmed. Um, that's just how I feel. And, and, and I've got as much satisfaction out of, I mean, we're a very young squad, as you probably know, we've got the youngest squad in all five top five divisions, including the national. So, but seeing the couple of 27, 28 year olds that we have got sort of change their outlook and see things differently. Um, you know, I've, I've got massive personal reward out of that, you know, because they're seeing things differently one of them's now coming to talk to me about, you know, he'd love to coach in the future, which is which is great. I see that as as a as really really positive as well. You know, he's he's really getting into his coaching and he's asked about that and different things, whereas it wasn't something he particularly thought of before. So that that's my purpose um, is to see people individually grow and and love their football and enjoy coming to work. I mean. In the years I was in the academy, I just found it frightening how many, because obviously you get to talk to the first team players still, because we, you know, you're at very close quarters here at Wimbledon. And the amount of players over the years I've spoke to who just look at it like a job and don't particularly enjoy it. And players I've spoke to outside who have retired and they've gone, oh, it was just a job, it's just football. And I, and I mean, I just find that, you know, it saddens me because, it, you know, it's the greatest game in the world. And we all know how hard it is to have a career. And to get there for all that hard work and then it just becomes a job, I find depressing. You know, so I want, I, I want these players to come and love coming to work, enjoy getting better. And of course, I want to be successful. And of course, I want to create something unbelievable for Wimbledon. But fundamentally, you know, I just can't think of anything worse than a player playing under me and turning up thinking, oh, it's a job, you know. Yeah. You have spoke, you've spoke about empowerment, mentioned it earlier. You like to empower your players. And you said even when you were with the under 10s, you'd have them doing the warm up or yeah. little, little bits of little tasks, I guess, that you give them that empower them. But a little bit different now, obviously, you're working with the first team. Now, when developing players and teams, what, 
what does empowerment mean? What does it look like? And and do you have any examples of what you're currently doing now in terms of empowering players? Well, it's, I think it's, it's more the other way, Dave. It's giving them ownership, which I think leads to empowerment, if that makes sense. I think if you give them ownership, the empowerment comes uh, and the confidence comes. So it's more about big believer in, in giving them ownership. So, you know, as I said, they, we give them ownership in terms of intensity of the, the sessions and the communication and the values. So we, we, we work in towards them having complete control of them. Um, we, we put the play, then I think the reflection is, is massive because in football, we do a lot of awful lot of cold reflection. So we reflect after the event, but we don't reflect during the event. So the fact that I give them the ownership to stop the session, I think, as I said, that allows that hot reflection during the time. And that, and it, again, this builds and this only happens if you've got that attachment and they feel comfortable having these honest conversations with each other. So we give them ownership on that. We give them, we're starting to give them more ownership now on their analysis as well um, for match day. So leading up to tomorrow's game, um, then we're getting them to look at the opposition more because we feel they need to get a feel and they're feeding back to us. Obviously, we know where we want to go with it, but um, we're giving them more and more empowerment on the analysis and they're feeding back to us in terms of what they think they need to do to have success and how that looks, etc. So we, we put them into to, to pairings as well. So after training, they, they reflect on each other's performance. So we tend to put a forward with a defender. Um, and the reason for that is because I think when you, you group players, we tend to put strikers with strikers and or, 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 or you know flare players with flare players and all they go off and they go off and talk about step overs and stuff. And whereas I think if you put, you know, we, we've got some exciting players and we put them with a defender, the defender's more likely to tell him what an effective flare player looks like because he knows how what, what an effective as a defender, you know what what makes you uncomfortable and what you don't want to defend against. So, you know, we've put our centre-half with one of our little flair players so that you can talk to him about what kind of player makes him feel uncomfortable as a defender. And then he reflects on that and training and says, you've done too much of this. You was easy for me to mark today because you did this. I find it so much more difficult to defend against you when you do that and do that and do that, etc. And vice versa. So we get those, we've got those little relationships going. Um, we reflect on each other. They reflect on our sessions. So the players reflect on our session as well. So we reflect, we, we have a scoring system where we reflect on their session in terms of our values and, and these elite behaviours and we score, we score them. They score themselves as well. And that forms a conversation and they do vice versa on us. And people feel that's weird that you would have players reflect on your session and give you feedback. But I find it's absolutely bizarre that you wouldn't do that um, because Again, fundamentally, I want to know that the sessions we're putting on, they're feeling a, a benefit and that they're feeling it's improving them. So, again, we, we do that after the session. We have this sort of 360 reflection process. So, again, there's just this kind of ownership going on all the time. And you just, over time, this gives them more empowerment. This gives more clarity. And, and it just gives them a better understanding of the game. You know, so they're talking, having more football conversations. 
a less nonsense conversation and it just grows and grows really over time so there's just loads of little things that go on as well as creating just a an environment here at the, the actual base where people feel comfortable you give them ownership that leads to empowerment at what point or and you, it may not have needed to happen but if it has at what point do you need do you know when to step in so best example of that i could give you is when i got the job last year things were going you know well after you know when i took over and then we had a we had a little blip over easter where we played well in three games but, but didn't get any points at all and one of the games in particular played really really well and you probably know Steve Salis, who I believe said on your show, Steve works with us. And he just talked to me about the edge. You know, he said, look, you've got this young group. They're playing really good football. But fundamentally, now you've lost three games. You know, you could go down. Do they realise that? You know, because you're telling them they're playing good football and they are playing good football and you know, the opposition manager's going, wow, you know, you played some good stuff, but fundamentally you still lost 1-0. Do, do they realise that they could be going down? So, you know, so Steve then talked to me about finding that edge. So I had to step in there um, and, and give them a bit of a reality check in terms of, right, you know, we, we're doing well, we're playing some good football now, um, but fundamentally we need to find an edge to, because... We could play some nice football all the way down into League Two, so so then I stepped in, and again we we changed our session slightly around finding that edge, um, and then we went on to win four on the trot and scored I think sixteen seventeen goals. So it's knowing when to step in, and I think Dave, that that's as well. That's where I'm learning is knowing when to step in, you know, and making sure that in amongst all this stuff where there are definitely so many exciting things happening and you see so many positive things happening that me also recognising I'm in the business of of picking up points and I want it to be a huge success for the club and for the players and recognising those moments when maybe I need to just step in, whether it's to give a bit of a reality check or some firmness, etc. Um, and again, you know, I can't lie, I'm learning on that because I've come, I've spent 16 years in development. So, you know, and, it, and it's just recognising those moments, really, and, and then recognising how I do it. Because the last thing I want to do, though, is you're trying to get these players to feel really empowered and confident. And the last thing I want to do is go in in such a way that they then clam up, if that makes sense. So it's how you go about that. Well, that, I was going to ask another question about that, because you have your way of doing things and... You've mentioned sometimes it, it doesn't always work. Have there been points where you've wanted to get away from that and take a different approach? Or is it just been, look, we're sticking to this. There may just have to be little tweaks here or there. Yeah, I think it's dangerous in whatever approach you've got to just blindly go down that approach, if that makes sense. You know, So even though I really believe in this and I believe true education is all the stuff we're talking about for them to just keep going down a road when things aren't working is just as dangerous as having the other road which I think is very short term and is never going to have any long-term results so you've got constantly got to 
reflect and have people around you that are honest enough to to be able to tell you, look, you need to you need to look at this. And that's what Steve did on that occasion. And and the actual method I used on that occasion was quite possibly, you know, quite hard hitting. I we had a meeting and you know I, I went off to the toilet when I didn't need to go and I just left the League Two table up there for them to look at before I come back. And I knew obviously they'd be looking at the League Two table. And then we just talked about, you know, are these places that you want to visit or are these places? And that's no disrespect to teams in League Two by it, right? You know, I didn't mean that, but obviously we've got some big clubs in League One now. And and it and it was almost a little bit of a, a shock, as in this is where you're ending. And then we took that into the session. But I felt like that was the the kick up the backside they needed then to to go into the sessions and, and it and it worked. So again, it's me recognizing that that am I being over holistic and do they need to face a bit of realism really? But I, I, I believe I've got other faces in me that I can bring out at certain times, you know, that that when I need to. But again, I think if if that other face comes out too much, then it just becomes a noise. So I've got to make sure that that when that other side of me comes out, it has it, it comes out and it has an impact because it's like anything. If it comes out too often, it's just I'm, I'm just that ranting manager again and again they switch off. So whatever road you're going down, you've constantly got to be looking and making sure that you're not being blinkered. Definitely, there's no doubt about that. You've got to be incredibly brave, uh, extremely creative in working this way. There's no doubt about it. In having delivered personally, delivered the modules, the FA modules, it's around creating this environment where you've got inclusion. You've also got where you're facilitating rather than actually a lecture. And the magic comes out through what you're hearing. But the real true golden thread is actually not telling them what to do, but actually listening and being able to facilitate and provide them, not with a solution, but actually help direct them through a different, down a different path. Yeah. Now with that, Mark, it's your, your title of head coach of a pro team, you know, it, it, they may sound nice and I'm sure they are, but equally bring certain pressures and demands. You've got media, you've got the, uh, you've got the fans. I dare say occasionally you may have a player or two that may have a little bit of a wobble. Yeah. But what coping strategies do you deploy or have you used to, to relinquish this pressure or demand from the professional game in itself? Honestly, Keith, that's the bit I'm trying to find myself right now, you know, because... Um, yeah, just to paint the picture for you, we, we had a really, really good start to the season, you know, beyond probably people's expectations. You know, we were, we were sitting in a playoff position and everyone's going, wow, you know, young squad. This is fantastic. Um, and then, you know, we've had a dip recently. We've only won, I think, well, we've lost two of our last five in, in all competition, won one of our last eight. So, you know, we've had a, we've had a dip. We're not getting smashed by any... You know that they're all narrow margins, etc. And like you said, what but what people don't see is they don't see the, the the growth that's happening every day at training. They don't see the things that you're seeing that you know if you get time are going to put you in such massive stead for the future. You know they don't see that fundamentally. All they see is win, lose, or draw on a Saturday. 
I think I'm, I've been fortunate. The fans have, they have seen a change in culture. They've seen, they're so attached to the players because I open the players up to the fans in, in certain ways. You know, they do things in the afternoons with, they volunteer for things and I make the players a lot more accessible to the fans. So they've, they've seen all that. I make myself very accessible to the fans as well. So they've seen that. So there's definitely a different feeling and, and obviously with the style of football, there's a real attachment and they're, you know, they're enjoying that. But fundamentally, you know, if you, if you go along, not picking points up, there's, there's those pressures in terms of me coping I'm fi- I find that difficult. There's no point in my line. I find that difficult. I put enormous um, pressure on myself to make this work. I've been at the club 16 years, you know, and I'm so passionate about make. I'm so passionate about the football club, and I'm so determined to make it work. So when we don't win, I find it tough, like really, really tough. And you know, I've got to come up with better coping strategies. If I'm honest, if I'm going to be the best version of myself, because I, I do believe in what we're doing I had a visit from a, a Premier League club yesterday in terms of future loans and you know the feedback I got from the guy was was overwhelming in terms of what he saw you know and the feedback he gave back to someone else I know at that Premier League club was overwhelming in what he saw so I know there's lots I know there's lots of positive things happening and I know there's lots of good things happening in terms of me making sure I believe in this I've got good people around me who trust in it but in terms of me coping personally I've got to find better ways um, so that I can be the best version of myself and and deliver this kind of education which you said which isn't easy takes patience and takes processes and takes reflection and and lots of hours I have to be in the best possible place mentally so you know that's something I'm still working on because, as I said, I do put huge amounts of pressure on myself to succeed. And fundamentally, because, you know, I know lots of people at this football club for a number of years who, who, who I love dearly as people, you know, and I, and I have to make this work for them, really. What are you learning most about yourself from being at the helm of a professional club, though, Mark? Um, it's a tough one, Dave. Because uh, I'm, I'm, I'm a massive self-reflector, so... There's nothing hidden there that I've gone, oh, you're that. It's more about what your dad just said, really. The thing I'm learning about myself is that I'm going to do this. I've got to find, I've got to find better ways to cope, if that makes sense. So if I'm, if I'm going to make this work and make this happen, I've got to find better ways to cope. That's what I'm learning because sometimes I'm, I'm overwhelmed by the expectations I put on myself. And when the result doesn't come, you know what I mean? I know that I've got to deal with that better because I, otherwise I'm going to end up being my, my own undoing. So I've, 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 that's the biggest thing I'm learning is that if, if, I'm, if I'm going to make this work with, with the team around me and with the players I've got, I've just got to probably find, well, I have to find a better way of coping with, it, with the downs. Final question. Yeah. What's your greatest curiosity about coaching? And the trends within the game at the level that you're working at. There's, there's no one way, Keith. Is this so? Because we'd all be doing it, right? So, so there's no one way. So I don't know if it's the greatest curiosity, but it's finding that balance, finding that wonderful balance. You can never sit there and go, "I found it," because that'd be your undoing as well. But, but constantly finding those balances where 
you you get to that stage where you go, it's getting there, it's getting there. And and to be honest, I, I had that, I've had that at youth level, Keith, and it's an incredible feeling. You know, I, I had a balance with two lots of lads I had where I got the ownership and respect and the values so right I can honestly stay. I stood I stood on the touchline and thought, unless something ridiculous happens, we do, we are not losing. We will not lose this football match. That's how much confidence I had in them in terms of their understanding of the game, how confident they felt in each other, the trust they had in each other, the fact that if things were going wrong, they'd be able to rectify it on the pitch. And at the same time, we had such a wonderful attachment together. And that was an incredible feeling, just to turn on the Saturday and feel so relaxed and just think, you know, I can't see how we'll lose unless... We all know we all love football so much because it's it's so unpredictable. But there was almost a predictability behind the fact that every week I knew we were going to win. So I guess my curiosity now is how do I bring that to first team level? Does it look the same, or because it is first team level, does it look slightly different? Um, you know, because I am when you've got those young lads and they're coming through they're like sponges and they're listening. I've also got players here who are, you know, some players who are 27, 28, who have done certain things for the same way maybe for the last 10 years, 12 years, 14 years. And and they're open to it. Don't get me wrong. Uh, they're, they're, they're listening and, and they're taking it all on board. But maybe just me getting that balance of, of how I'm, I'm going get to this, get this right before you add the next layer on, really. Mark, you've been incredibly open where you've exposed us to your solution-based coaching method and how you actually work with your players at AFC Wimbledon. On behalf of David and myself and the listeners, we wish you well for the rest of the season and hopefully we get to catch up with you very soon. Thanks for tuning in to the Golders podcast today. If you enjoyed this episode and you haven't already subscribed, please do so. Your continued support is highly appreciated and it means so much to us knowing that the content that's being produced is providing value in people's lives. If you would like to know more or get more information from us, you can follow us on Twitter at Gold Dust Podcast. And also you can visit our website at thegolddustcoach.com. Thank you, everybody.